Join me, if you would, in uh, John 4. I'd appreciate you doing that. We will uh, stay right there for the most part for the next little bit. Glad that we get to worship together. Appreciate these guys for leading us in worship this morning. Uh, There's a a sense in which I think worship ought to be emphasized in some ways, maybe more than we've done so in the past. There are other ways in which, as I was saying a minute ago, I think we've overemphasized it in the sense that we've made it almost, in some ways, like the thing, the thing that defines Christianity. Do you go to church somewhere? And by that we mean, do you assemble regularly with a local body? And I think we ought to think about that. That, 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 that ought to be something we talk about as, as Christians, obviously. At the same time, Christianity is more than what we do in this one hour, you know? It's more than what we do in this one hour, but having said that, this one hour matters. And I I believe, and I think Scripture supports this, that worship ought to empower us to do what we ought to be doing the rest of the week. That this, this hour matters, it's significant, because in this moment, we block out worldly stuff. We, we, we try to stop thinking about work and school and viruses and unrest and division, political wrangling. We, we try to forget about that for a minute. And we try to remember, we're reminded by, of, of the fact that God is, that, that, that He is sovereign, He is powerful, He's in control and He's working and He's worthy of our, of our praise and honor. So this, this, hour, this hour matters. Let's look at John 4. Let me give you a little background here. John 4 is a story about a woman that Jesus encountered when he was going from the south part, Judah, up to the north part, Galilee. And in between there was this region called Samaria. Now Samaria had about 700 years before Jesus. It had become a, an area of, of people who were different ethnically and culturally and, and religiously. And um, that, that came about... It developed all sorts of problems, um, and because they all lived together, they lived in the same regions, they didn't like one another. The Samaritans were viewed by Jewish people as being lesser, less than, because of their ethnicity. They were not fully Jewish, they were half Jewish and half non-Jewish. Because of their religion, they, uh, the, the Samaritans, they took the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and they rejected the rest. Consistently, consistent with that, they, they had established a different place of worship. It was a place called Gerizim, which is this, uh, this area where Jesus is, because that was the place where Abraham first built an altar, and so they established Gerizim as their place of worship, whereas the Jews had established Jerusalem as their place of worship. So, a lot of conflict here, a lot of, a lot of disagreement, a lot of... Um, uh, dis, dislike, a lot of unrest, um, and, and so a lot of that was going on. So when Jesus went through that area, he stopped because he got tired and he stopped at a well, and a woman came, a Samaritan woman, a woman um, who had a, kind of a, a spotted immoral past. She had been married five times, was living with somebody apparently she wasn't married to. She was different Samaritan. She was a woman. She was immoral. All those, culturally speaking, were, there were three strikes against her, especially as far as it came to having a conversation in a public place with a Jewish man. 
especially a Jewish rabbi. So all that stuff mixed in makes this a little bit of a tense conversation. And yet Jesus engages her and he talks to her as a human being. Just treats her like a person. Now when we come to our, our text, our, our part of this story, I, I want to go back and read just a little bit so we've got the, got the context a little bit. Jesus confronts, uh, well, confronts too strong of a word. Uh, Jesus points out her situation. Call your husband, come here, verse 16. And she says, well, I'm, I'm not married. Hoping, I think, obviously, she's hoping that'll be the end of that. I'm not married. Technically true. Jesus doesn't let it sit there, though, does he? He says, oh, yeah, you're right. You, when you say you have no husband, yeah, you, you're exactly right. Uh, you've been married five times and you're living with somebody now you're not married to. It's just interesting to me how Jesus talks to her. He treats her with honor and yet at the same time he, he gently nudges her to think about her life. Um, so she says, you said, you know, uh, she says, verse 19, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now here's her strategy. When the, when the conversation gets uncomfortable, Let's change the subject. And no better way to change the subject than to bring up some, some difficult point of theology, something that had caused a lot of strife and a lot of disagreement and a lot of stuff over the years. And so she says in verse 20, Our fathers, she's talking about the Samaritan people, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, that's Mount Gerizim. But you say, that's a plural you, by the way, you all, you guys, you Jews say, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she brings up this 700-year-old conflict to try to get the conversation off of her marriage situation. It's a pretty good strategy. To a certain extent, it works. Jesus doesn't bring up the marriage anymore. But he does redirect her again. And in verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. By the way, woman is not a disrespectful thing. We've talked about that before. And John 2 and other places, it's not a, it's not a disrespectful way of, of Jesus greeting her. Uh, one, one commentary I read this week suggested that maybe madam, though that would be awkward for us, to, if I called one of you ladies madam, you would think, what, that's, that's really weird. So I don't know, madam or ma'am or I don't know exactly what, what English word we've got to kind of get the right connotation here, but whatever it is, he's treating her with respect. So woman... Uh, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Let's talk about the hour for, for a minute or two. The hour is here. The hour is here. Now, it's one of the things when you're reading a text like this is to look at words, but, but also look at how words are used, especially in the same reading. And so in the book of John, the word hour usually refers to a specific hour. And you can probably guess what that hour is. It is that hour of Jesus' glorification as a result of his death, burial, and resurrection. So the hour in John usually means the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that resulted in his ascending to the right hand of the Father and being glorified as he was before his incarnation. So that's the hour. So he says, the hour is what? It is coming. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. We'll talk about that in a minute. Then he goes on and he says, verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here. Jesus likes that kind of language, that kind of tension, that temporal kind of tension where the hour is coming, so it's, there's some sense in which it's future, 
but it's already starting. It's already here in some sense. Bible, Jesus likes that because it, what, what he says, I believe, is that that hour is coming, you know, temporally speaking, talking about time. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was yet future, but it was already starting. Jesus was already here, so there's a sense in which that moment is starting to arrive. It's kind of like when uh, the Bible talks about kingdom. The kingdom is here, but it's not fully here. So we can still pray, your kingdom come, in the sense that though God's reign is being realized here, it's not yet fully realized, as it will one day be. So the kingdom is here, but it's not yet fully here. Jesus is here, but his death, burial, and resurrection haven't yet fully come. His glorification hasn't yet come. So it's just important for us to understand at this point that when we're, when we're talking about the hour... Jesus is pointing to a climactic moment when everything's going to change. And so he kind of says to her, okay, yeah, you know, yeah, you got this controversy about place and all that. And you're wrong, he says. You're not right on that. You don't even know what you worship. You've neglected a you know, big part of your Old Testament, of the Bible. And so, but he doesn't dwell on that. And he says, you know, you're not right about the place of worship. You don't really understand the God that you serve or you're trying to worship, but that's really irrelevant because everything's about to change. So I think he's pointing here to a, to a very important thing, a very important perspective that we need to acknowledge. And that is that when Jesus died on the cross, he introduced a different way of relating to God. Here's the second idea then. We'll, we'll talk about it here. We worship the Father. Now, to an extent, people have always worshipped the Father. They've always worshipped God. But Jesus means it differently. He doesn't mean it like that. He means it's about to change. A couple of ideas here. Do you remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross during those six hours, a number of things happened. One of them was that the eclipse happened, of course, but also the earthquake that came. And as a result of the earthquake, the veil in the temple was torn into, was ripped asunder. That veil, it's important for us to understand here because Jesus is talking about that hour when everything's going to change, and that veil's being torn signifies the change occurring. So the temple was divided into two rooms. You had the holy place, then you had the veil, and then you had the most holy place, and you could not go beyond the veil unless you were the high priest and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. That veil signified a barrier between people and where God is. God symbolically dwelled in that inner room, you know. So you do not go beyond the veil. But when Jesus was dying, the earthquake came and that veil was torn, signifying we can access the Father in a way that had been previously unimagined. No longer do you access him through, on the Day of Atonement, through the killing of the goat and the bull. No longer do you access him by, on the Passover, killing the thousands of animals, one for each family. No longer do you have to go through a priest, an earthly priest, but rather Jesus became high priest and he opened up the doors to the Father. And so we worship him in this kind of unfettered way. I don't, I don't know how to, to do this, to say this in the right way, to cause any of us, myself included, to understand and appreciate what that means because we kind of take it for granted. We've been doing this all of our lives, and we know that God hears our prayers, 
But Jesus was talking about a climactic moment when the doors of heaven would be opened in the sense that we can access the Father through Jesus Christ. We worship Him. Second idea about that worship is informed by Isaiah 6. Now, it's hard to talk about worship for me without talking about Isaiah 6. Uh, Isaiah is ushered into the throne room of God in some sort of a vision. And, um, and when, he, when he gets into the throne room of God, he sees these creatures, these angelic creatures who have six wings. And they have two wings that, that they've got extended down over their bodies. They've got two wings that are extended up over their faces. And they've got two wings that they're using to fly. And so these creatures, and they're crying out, holy, 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 holy. They realize this, the, the wings, the wings covering their bodies, that signifies almost embarrassment. It is it's almost like shame. It's this, uh, it, it communicates this idea of, man, I do, we do not deserve to be here. And so we're going to hide ourselves from the presence of this holy God, crying out, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah is witnessing this, and he falls down and says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the middle of a people of unclean lips. I do not deserve to be here either. There is a sense, well, let me say this. I, I don't know how to say this either. We can come to God and talk to him as our Abba. He's not some distant deity. He's, he's, not, he's not unapproachable. He, he came to us in Jesus, and because of that, we can call him Abba, Father, our God. That's just an incredible thing. And at the same time, I think, so I, so I think we need that familiar part, and I, but I don't think we need to lose the awe part either. So somehow in worship, we are both familiar with God, we can call Him Abba, and yet we recognize still, worship causes us to recognize still Man, I am a man, I am a woman. We are people of unclean lips still. But through Jesus, he has enabled us to enter into that most holy place, to the throne room of God, to call him our Father, our Abba. So we worship him, we worship him. We come into his presence. Now, last two ideas are going to become one. I wish I'd put this, I said this at the, Eight o'clock. I'll say it. I'll say it again now. This out. This this outline ought to have three points, not four. <laughs> the reason is the way I've outlined this: worship in spirit, and the last point is worship in truth. That's inconsistent, I think, with the way the text is written, and it communicates this idea that I don't want to communicate. In the, in the text, we worship Him in spirit and truth. I want to be very careful about the way I read that because I still want to read it and put an extra in, an extra I-N in there. I want to read it like this. Those who worship him, verse 24, must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's the way some translations put it. Those translations miss it, I think. There's only one preposition in the underlying text, and it modifies both nouns. So, in spirit and truth, not in spirit and in truth, as if they were two different components. You get the two components right, and you're good. But rather, the way it's written is, is, pretty, is pretty interesting, and it's, it's pretty important. We worship him in spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. This is one thing. So it's important for us to understand. I know there are two words here, but they're communicating one idea. So let's wrestle with it just for a minute. 
And it's got to be informed by the first part of this, uh, verse 24, God is spirit. Again, some translations say God is a spirit. It shouldn't be that way. God is spirit. God is spirit. That's his nature. And so when the word is used twice in the same sentence, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit, we need to think about how they relate. There is a way that I've taught this before that I now believe is wrong. Uh, that, that spirit here refers to attitude, that my attitude in worship ought to be right. Now, I believe that's true, of course, only that this text isn't really saying that, at least not directly. But rather the spirit, the worship in spirit, relates to the nature of God. And because in John 14 and John 15, in this same letter, same book, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God is called the Spirit of Truth. You've got Spirit of Truth used later. Spirit and Truth in the same sentence referring to the Holy Spirit who His, His nature is consistent with and is reflective of truth. It seems that this text ought to be saying the same thing. And that is our worship must be Holy Spirit empowered. And when it is so, it will be done consistent with truth with the nature of God, the true nature of God as spirit. And so instead of separating these and saying, well, you get the attitude right, and then you get the form right, your attitude is good, and you've also got the right outward forms, then you're okay. Now, those two things are true as well, only that that wasn't the original intent that Jesus meant when he, when he wrote, when he said this. So our worship when it's going to be pleasing to God, it's not going to be bound by location. I appreciate Bill's prayer to that end, that those of you who are joining online and those of us who are in this room right now are worshiping together, and you can worship at home, and we can worship here. We're worshiping together. Place doesn't matter so much in one sense. Worship God on a creek bank. Worship God on a golf course. Worship God when you're driving in traffic around Birmingham. You can do all that. That Jesus is saying, it's not about Gerizim, it's not about Jerusalem, it's not about place, it's not about buildings, it's not about rites, R-I-T-E-S, not about rituals, it's not about the ceremony, about the form. Here, his point is, it is about your being empowered by the nature of God, by the Spirit of God, consistently with truth to worship Him. And when you do that, yes, your attitude will be right. Yes, you will worship God in certain forms. Jesus through the apostles, we'll talk about some of those forms at other places in the New Testament. But his point here is the Spirit of God enables us to worship him consistently with his nature, according to truth. Now, a couple of ideas here that I want you to think about, and then we'll be done. Uh, throughout this story, throughout this narrative in John 4, Jesus is converting the woman, you know, he's converting this Samaritan woman. And there are, there are two things in conversion, and I think there are two things in worship that ought to be true. And Jesus implies here that there is both a cognitive aspect and there is also a, an experiential aspect to conversion and to worship. And so conversion takes place. When conversion takes place, there is a cognitive aspect. So Jesus teaches the woman about who he is. Through, through his conversation, he, you got, there are certain historical facts one must acknowledge, one must agree with cognitively, intellectually, in order to become a Christian. But those cognitive aspects alone are insufficient. They must also 
they must issue forth in experience, in, in experiential aspects. Same is true of worship. When he's teaching her, we cannot worship if we don't agree with certain historical facts. There's got to be this cognitive aspect. Now, let me ask you something. In churches of Christ, what do you think? You don't have to answer this out loud, but in churches of Christ, what do you think we've emphasized, historically speaking, more than the other? Have we emphasized more of the cognitive aspect or the experiential? You don't have to answer that because I think I know the answer. I think the answer is we've emphasized the cognitive, the intellectual part, which must be there. If we worship God and not understand the God whom we worship, nor do we understand certain or agree with certain historical facts about the identity of Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, his coming, uh, his, his, his reign, and so on, then we're not worshiping God. You don't know who you're worshiping, he said to her. There's got to be a cognitive component. But the cognitive co component, the intellectual component, must lead itself to an experience as well. The Spirit enables us to worship. And when the Spirit enables us to worship, it doesn't mean, don't, don't hear me saying, don't mishear me saying, that it's going to result in some sort of, like um, what we, what's often called just charismatic kind of, maybe speaking in tongues or, or whatever. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But I am suggesting to you that this cognitive component leads us to experience true worship. And that means that we feel. There's nothing wrong with feeling. Nothing wrong with feeling. Um, do, you, do you ever wonder if maybe we've emphasized, emphasized the cognitive to the exclusion of the experiential? That maybe we've, we've, we've so overdone the intellect that we've underemphasized the heart? I think that's possible, and maybe to an extent it's true. One can get off balance in either extreme, and it becomes all emotion. Oh, man, it felt good. Well, feeling good doesn't necessarily mean it's right. We know that. So it's not all about feelings, but neither is it all, all about the, the, the intellect. So in conversion, you've got to believe certain things, and you obey. You experience certain things. In worship, we believe certain things. We celebrate in communion in just a minute. We celebrate certain historical facts. We believe them to be true. But we also feel it. I, I, just, I guess I'd, I'd like for us to... I'd like for you to know, if you don't already... It's okay for you to feel. It's okay for you to get excited and worship. It's okay for you to cry. It's okay for you to laugh. It's okay for you to be overwhelmed with emotion when you realize, man, God has invited us into his holy presence. I don't deserve to be here and how awesome it is to be his son or his daughter and for us to express that in emotional kinds of ways. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's cognitive. It's experiential. No, there is something wrong. I feel the need to offer, you know, the asterisk here, the, the caveat. If it's all emotion, if it's all feeling to the exclusion of how God has instructed us in Scripture, then that also becomes wrong. Worship God in spirit and truth. And so when the spirit and truth worship happens, God is glorified and honored, and we ourselves learn to live more consistently with that principle throughout the week. And so we become people who, on Monday, we believe certain things cognitively, and we live them out. And so we feel this, uh, this kind of emotional bond that draws us to God. And we live that throughout the week. Worship in spirit and truth. Worship the spirit of truth in spirit and truth. We worship the Father, the Son, the Spirit, called by His Spirit into his presence, into a holy place 
this morning. And then it changes us for the rest of the week. If you're not a Christian this morning, you know, we, uh, we, invite you, we invite you to come to Christ. If you trust in him with all of your heart, if you will be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, as you turn your back on your past, whatever that past involves, doesn't really matter. What matters is you turn to Christ and you say no to your past, no to your sins, and yes to him. Baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and God will add you to his body, the church. Uh, you can do that today. Maybe you need to ask for prayers from your church family today. Uh, we'll do anything we can for you spiritually. If you need to come, uh, let's stand and sing. I hope you'll come now.